This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week. Thank you so much for joining me. This Friday marks two years since the pandemic began and dramatically changed the world. Canada's long-term care sector experienced an unprecedented crisis. We were forced to isolate from family, friends, and loved ones during regular times and important holidays. And snowbirds experienced disruptions to their travel plans. But in recent weeks, following the Omicron crisis of the COVID pandemic, The pandemic appears to be taking a turn for the better, although not to the point that the World Health Organization will declare it over. The governing Ford PCs eased most of their COVID-19 restrictions, which means business owners of gyms, restaurants, and cinemas are no longer required to ask customers for proof of COVID vaccination. Also, at the end of this month, it's expected Ontario's mask mandate will be lifted. And In an additional sign of positive change, Toronto Mayor John Tory announced on Friday that major public gathering events will resume this year, including Doors Open Toronto and the St. Patrick's Day Parade on March 20th. So where does this put you? If you've been hesitant to get back to normal, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now that there is no proof of vaccination mandate, have you stopped going to restaurants or do you feel confident that your booster shot is protecting you against the possibility of contracting COVID? Have you resumed social gatherings with others? And as we reach the two-year mark of COVID-19, how has the pandemic changed you personally and permanently? Again, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740-1-866-740-4740. Joining us to discuss the two-year mark in the pandemic through the eyes of our older demographic, an abbreviated Zoomer squad today, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, and a special guest, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Affairs. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start by talking about how COVID-19 has changed us, especially for those who are older and maybe immunocompromised. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts on that two years in? Well, I think many of our CART members are thinking, is this, you know, too much too soon? Is it time? Uh, is it time yet to do it? There's real... Um, um, uncertainty in many people's minds after the after the heavy-handed uh, approach of governments telling us what to do. Now we end up with having things come off quickly when there still seems to be a good deal of COVID around us. So it, it's uh, it's and, and confusion about uh, what they can do and what they can't do to protect their own health. Daryl, over to you now. Uh, your thoughts um, as a pollster. How are people feeling, especially people who are 55, 65, 75 plus at this point in the pandemic? Well, there's a diversity of opinions on this. That's the, one of the interesting things. It's not like uh, people all are thinking one way about this. And when you take a look at how the population divides itself out, um, you'll find that there are people who can't wait to get out there. But just as Bill said, there's also a group of the population that is going to take them some incentive, um, and that incentive probably would be seeing other people being successful and, you know, their friends and family and, and, uh, and social circle being successful re-engaging. But when you particularly look at, uh, at the older segment, they're not as keen in general as re- to quickly re-engage as uh, the younger segment. If you, you want to see the population that's most, um, I would say, desirous of, of getting out there and uh, re-engaging with everything that they used to recognize as their lives, it tends to be 
more younger people, but not exclusively younger people. And does the vaccination part of it factor into people's decisions as to whether they're going to go sit in a restaurant, uh, whether they've been double or triple vaccinated? Well, the, the part of the issue that we're dealing with here in Canada is that so many people have been vaccinated. It's actually kind of hard to find people who haven't been. So, um, you know, in the city of Toronto, I think the number is about 10 percent uh, that, that haven't at least had one uh, vaccination. So it's, it's, it's less about that and more about how safe people are going to feel as a result of that vaccine going back into a public environment. And and you have a diversity of views. There's a people, you turn on the lights, they're ready to jump out there all the way through to, I really have to convince, be convinced that this is absolutely safe before I will ever consider it. And then a whole sort of series of gradients in between. So, uh, you know, as I, I tell people when they ask me this question, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a supply problem. There's lots of opportunities to go to go out there. And to a certain extent, it's not a demand problem either. People do want to get back out there. But there's this barrier, which is, first of all, understanding that what they're going to be experiencing is going to be worth it. It's going to be worth taking the risk. And, that the, and, and then after that, whether or not the risks are manageable. And, and that's what people need to sort out in their minds right now. So imagine a whole population that's sitting there on the edge of the pool, kind of sticking their toe in, trying to figure out whether or not it's okay to jump back in. Well, that's interesting then. So you're saying your age is not dependent on how you're feeling about getting into the pool. Yeah, and there's a certain tendency that older people are a bit more reluctant, but it's not exclusively older people. Uh, there's a lot of older people who just want to get back out there as well. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Are you out there? Have, you know, regardless of your age, are you back in the restaurants? Have you been going to restaurants when we haven't been locked down, uh, going to cinemas to see a movie? Or have you waited and held off and maybe just gotten takeout and watched a lot of television inside? Uh, it would be interesting to hear uh, related to your age and and what you're thinking at this point in the pandemic as we come up on the two-year anniversary on Friday. Again, the numbers, 416-360-0740, Bill, Bill Van Gorder of CARP, let's talk about long-term care. Nearly 4,000 deaths in Ontario related to COVID, primarily in the first and second waves. Boosters did, for the most part, have the desired effect in keeping the death rate down in the most recent wave. But it really is a time of reflection, especially coming up on the provincial election in June. Well, it really is. And uh, by the way, I apologize for the poor quality. I've changed phones. so Hopefully you could hear me better now, and I won't repeat anything that Daryl has said. But one of the things that we know, uh, to answer your question, is that long-term care was in deep, deep trouble prior to COVID. And COVID just exacerbated those issues and made them all too clear. Uh, and one of the things that CARP fears now is that somehow uh, governments and others will feel it's better to go back to uh, where we were pre-COVID. And that can't happen. We weren't in a good place. We ha- we've learned a lot from uh, COVID, and we have to aim higher now to make sure that uh, we improve uh, long-term care in the way it must be. It, it must be improved. We now know that we can pivot quickly, that uh, uh, vaccines and medicines and, and other approaches can can move much more quickly than we thought they could in the past. We proved that through COVID. We've now got to apply that in the recovery uh, period. And when that recovery happens, whether it's right away or a little bit later, there are a tremendous number of things we're behind on uh, in terms of long-term care and other health care uh, priorities. So now is the time as we come up to the provincial election when we've got to be looking ahead and planning and not and and not just reacting uh, to what's happening, but making sure we're ready for a new future when it comes to long-term care. Daryl Bricker, let me ask you about that. Is long? Oh, sorry, Bill, I thought you were finished there. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say the other thing about long-term care is that 
uh, still, and remember we, we ran into this at the beginning of COVID, it's still up to the local facilities to make the final rules around uh, uh, opening and closing, who can come in, who can't come in. And because so many long-term care facilities are still suffering from problems of low staffing, uh, we just because the, the government has raised the restrictions and said that now more people can visit long-term care, that may not actually happen in the long-term care facility that uh, you are particularly concerned about. So don't expect a complete and automatic change the moment the government changed the rules. Right. Our Zoomer squad here on uh, Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, Jane for Libby, that's Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Policy Officer of CARP, along with Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, uh, you know, it's a, it's a completely different climate right now in Ontario as we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully, knock on wood, cross our fingers and all that good stuff. But will people, will voters remember, do you think, uh, when it comes time to cast a ballot in June, uh, the horror, the devastation that was in long-term care at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that uh, it, it is an issue that uh, if people are brought back to it by the opposition parties in particular, that there's enough facts on the ground that um, there, are, there are some things for the government to, to, to answer for. But the, the general mood of the public I would describe right now is, is really fragile, um, which is a, a volatile environment for any government to be running, uh, you know, in an election campaign. And, it, you know, it's not just uh, what we're dealing with with the pandemic. It's not just among elderly citizens. I mean, we've now got a war going on in uh, in, uh, in Europe that we, you know, never thought we'd see uh, after, after the Second World War. Uh, inflation, um, another big issue for, for older populations who tend to be on fixed incomes, becoming a really big concern going forward here. And housing, which is always a a significant issue for all segments of the population. Uh, now starting to rise up the uh, the list of, of concerns that people have. So it's just not what happened in long-term care. There's just all of these residual things that are emerging as we go through go through the process of, of 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 coming out of the pandemic. But we're also being affected by these other things that are starting to happen, which which basically create a very volatile, fragile political environment for this next election. So when you say fragile, um, you're talking about the mental health of voters, um, and, you know, because it's upsetting, as you mentioned, and we will be talking about uh, the repercussions of the war in Ukraine uh, in the second half hour, but also gas prices. I mean, the fact that they jumped 26 cents in one week, you're talking about that sort of fragility, right? That uncertainty that we are all feeling. I couldn't have put it better. That's exactly how people are feeling. And what happens when people start to feel that way is their horizon gets a lot shorter. So they stop thinking, you know, what's going to happen five years from now to start thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. And the other thing that happens is that their concerns become less, I would say, global, less less community-oriented, and they become very personal. And people start thinking about how these things are affecting them. And that's what we're seeing in the public opinion data right now is that these things that relate to, I would say, uh, the, uh, the cost of living rather than inflation, but the cost of living and the certainty about what our economic future is going to be is the thing that's really moving up the agenda as, the, as concern about the pandemic starts to come down. Our Zoomer radio listeners want to get in on the conversation, which I was hoping would happen. We're talking about how we're coming up on two years of the pandemic this Friday. March 11th marks two years since the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 crisis, then the new coronavirus, a pandemic. How are you doing? How are you doing two years into this? What is your mindset? How has the pandemic changed you personally and permanently? The numbers again, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. Let's go to David Embarrass. David, go ahead. Yes, um, this the COVID nineteen. It, it's affected myself and my wife permanently. Um, we celebrate every week and are thankful that uh, we're alive, survived this, um, and going forward when we go to public, just to, just to go shopping, we'll wear gloves and wear a mask, regardless of whether COVID nineteen was successfully beaten down, eradicated, because we realize how quickly a new variant or a new virus could prop up 
um, you could be um, you could be affected by that without even knowing it that it's running loose, and that's just a method going forward to protect ourselves and to keep our health uh, when we go into public. And then when we're in our house, we uh, we tend to use a lot more um, uh, cleaning solutions for doorknobs, such that we don't pass anything to anybody else or or ourselves. David, that's interesting. So you plan to continue wearing gloves and masks uh, even after the pandemic is declared over. What about going to restaurants and cinemas and the theater and that kind of thing? Uh, cinemas, uh, theaters, out of the question. Um, any close in proximity, out of the question. Uh, we Now we, uh, we've made changes, positive changes. We'll go to a drive-in theater on our own vehicle. We can have a nice private conversation. We can bring some of our own food. We can buy some of the. Lo- we don't like to buy the local food there because of the lineups, and we still get to see a movie, and um, and then uh, we just become a little more um, close personally with with the people that we associate with. It's just our family, and um, and it's become very important that if somebody is sick, we don't get together. Um, very, very cautious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for calling in, David. Thank you. I think a lot of people do feel like, David, this pandemic has changed all of us. You know, once the mask mandate is lifted, you know, for how long will we see people at the local grocery store, at Costco, at Shoppers Rexall wearing their masks? Will people continue to wear their masks uh, even when they're maybe feeling a little tickle in their throat just to protect themselves and protect others? Let's go to see him in Toronto. Um, How are you feeling two years in? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. Um, thank God we're uh, we're safe. Um, myself, my husband, we're two seniors. We have two uh, young families and uh, grandchildren. We've been, you know, holding up. It's not the same, but uh, um, we just have to deal with what's going on, and we're hopeful things are going to be better. Uh, my concern is with the opening. Um, wide opening are the grandchildren. We have four grandchildren aged one to four, and uh, they're not vaccinated. Uh, they've been restricted, of course, um, uh, no travel, nothing, and we've been very careful. And I'm not sure what does this mean for the younger children and the younger families, because they are still struggling with a child having a, even a cold or a uh, they keep, uh, you know, it's, it's a major, major disruption for young uh, families. Absolutely. Sam, thank you for calling in. Bill, uh, you know, that is a widespread sentiment among Zoomers, older Zoomers who have grandchildren, especially for and under who are not eligible for the vaccine. Certainly uh, is. And as we begin to uh, have to manage our own health, these are the kind of decisions that families have to make and seniors have to make both for themselves uh, and for their families. And it's very confusing. Uh, there hasn't been a good job done in explaining to people why they should or shouldn't wear masks, what masks do, whether uh, distancing really works. Even today, I had a couple of, uh, of older Canadians say to me, we saw Trudeau meeting the Queen today. Mm-hmm. She's just recovered, and neither of them had a mask on. So what does that signal to the rest of us about uh, about masks? So that's that's why I think your listeners are, as our current members are, are confused about what will work and what won't, and what will really protect us against uh, future uh, uh, pandemics like COVID. Well, and along those lines, you know, you mentioned about uh, the masking and who will continue wearing masks afterwards, and whether people wear their masks if they've had three shots. The whole uh, booster shot uptake scenario picture is interesting when you relate it to ages. And, and Daryl, I'd like to get your thoughts on this uh, as a pollster. If you look across the board in Canada, people 50 to 59, 60% have gotten a third shot booster. In the 60 to 69 age group, that number, that percentage is up to 74%. 70 to 79, 82%, 80 plus, 84%. The booster shot uptake has not been the same as the first and second doses, as you can see there from the younger generation. 
Yeah, and I think that there's a you know a few reasons behind that. One of them is we, we're kind of confused on what the question of being fully vaccinated is. Is it two shots or three shots? I mean, if we went out and did a survey today, I don't think that we'd find unanimity of opinion on uh, on what that is. The second thing, though, is that people were promised by governments uh, that if they got their two shots, then we would open up and we would be able to get back on with our regular lives. That hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. We're still not there today. So there, there's a there's a difficulty among that group of the population when they're saying, where they're saying, why should I take a risk on getting a booster? Or not even a risk. Why should I even bother getting a booster? Because I'm no farther ahead today than I was two years ago. Right. And, the and, the and fully vaccinated the governments are combating. Sorry to interrupt, but the fully vaccinated criteria for going to a restaurant or a gym in Ontario up until March 1st was two shots. So you're, I think you're exactly right. People are confused about, well, if I'm fully vaccinated, why do I need to get another booster? Yeah. And so confusion uh, equals hesitation. And the fact that the payoff that you were supposed to get hasn't occurred. Um, is, is, is also a problem. So the, until we start to see um, uh, a correlation, people start to feel a correlation between getting that third shot and getting more freedom in their lives, mm-hmm. and it's not just a question of protection. It's, 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 it's also the ability to move and do things uh, that has a, an effect on this. Until they start seeing some sort of a material change as a result of that, it's difficult. It's more difficult to encourage them to uh, uh, to, uh, to to go out and get another vaccination, to get a booster shot. Our conversation is going by way too quickly. Uh, let's go to Angelo in North York. I want to fit in some more callers. Angelo, uh, where are you at two years into the pandemic? Uh, you know, Jane, thank you for taking my call, first of all. I listen to the show every single day. But Jane, I'll be 77 years young, May 10th. Congratulations. Young, not old, young. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't lost a day's work. I always go out. I have, I have been going out every single day of the year. And I haven't vaccinated myself at all. All my family did it, the kids, the grandkids, my wife. And guess what? They all got sick, not me. Well, you got lucky, Angelo, uh, and thank you for sharing your story because yours is one of the many stories. There are people, 10% of the population has not even gotten a first shot, and Angelo is among them, and that was his choice. Let's go to Dennis in Brampton. Dennis, go ahead. Thanks, Jane, for taking my call. So uh, I think it boils down to each of us has to take at our own uh, comfort level with what degree of risk we're willing to take. I'm 76 years of age, and I, for one, am going back uh, to my life the way that it was. Uh, That will also include uh, going back and volunteering at an urgent care center where I've been furloughed for the last two years because of COVID. I just feel that, uh, for me at least, uh, you know, time is going by each day. uh, You know, we see world events. We don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow, six months from now, or a year so. I'm looking forward to going back and I've been to restaurants. I will, however, wear my N95 mask on a consistent basis. And thanks for taking my call. Well, it's always nice to talk with you, Dennis. I'll get final comments now from our Zoomer squad panelists, Bill Van Gorder and Daryl Bricker. As we approach uh, two years, Bill, I mean, any personal thoughts uh, on this anniversary? Uh, yeah, it's been a tough, long two years for all of us. We're also anxious to get back to uh, uh, the uh, certainly not going to be back to back to normal, but it will be a reasonable facsimile. And the key for all of us is to do our best to manage our own health with the best information we can get from the best sources. And Daryl, uh, if you want to make a personal comment or uh, on the thoughts of Canadians, uh, we're still in this pandemic. It has not been called off yet, but uh, where we're headed as we go into year three. Yeah, I think the big thing is that the mood that we were experiencing last summer when people were starting to think, you know, happy days are here again. That's not how people are greeting the recovery this time. No. It's You heard a very good representation, I think, on the, the callers that you heard from today as to how all over the map people are on this, and it's going to take a while. 
It is going to take a while. We were all fooled by Omicron, uh, thinking that we were out of it last fall, and uh, clearly that was not the case. So let that be a cautionary tale. Gentlemen, I thank you both for your time. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Bill Van Gorder is a regular on our Zoomer squad, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Jane for Libby, who's on vacation this week, and you and your calls. And in the next segment, how is the war, Putin's war on Ukraine, how is that affecting Ukrainian Canadians? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. If you are of Ukrainian heritage and have family and or friends in Ukraine, we'd like to hear from you this half hour. The number is to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. Canada has the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world next to Russia. And Ontario has the largest number of people who identify as Ukrainian than any other province or territory. My husband is among them, Myron, and I know he is struggling with what is going on in the land where his parents were born and in the culture uh, he was raised. It is um, especially having been over there with him three times, visiting family. It's very upsetting uh, what's going on there when you see all the videos on social media, uh, when you're watching, when you're hearing uh, the news about the bombings and the air raid sirens, it's it really is horrible. Uh, so it's an opportunity to share some of those feelings this half hour here with us on Zoomer Radio. Again, the numbers to call 416-360-0740-1-866-740-4740-1-866-740-4740. One of those individuals Individuals who identifies as Ukrainian Canadian is a colleague of ours here at Zoomer Media, Genya Hulak, and she joins me on the line from down the hall at the Zoomerplex. Hi, Genya. Hi, Jane. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, but I know for you, uh, as it is for Myron, this is a very difficult time. How are you doing? Well, I've been uh, crying on and off since the 24th, and. Um, Watching CNN and our news here and listening to it has basically depressed me. And I do try to, to have my happy moments and, uh, but, but the heaviness, the feeling of heaviness has not left me. Um, I do feel an incredible sense of pride for our president Zelensky. He has just been amazing going to the rallies in Toronto and walking down Jane Street with my group of friends, holding our flags, our caps, our scarves, and having every car honk at us in support of the Ukrainians has been amazing. But honestly, I just wish somebody would put Putin out of his misery. I think a lot of people feel that way, that he, as a dictator of Russia... Um, does not embrace the sentiment of the people of Ukraine or of, of Russia. Sorry. I mean, we're seeing many people in Russia, uh, risking their lives, uh, by going out and protesting a, against this war. It, it, it seems like he's a madman on his own path. On social media, um, I, I basically look at LinkedIn. I'm really blown away by the amount of Russians who are showing their support by having the Russian flag and the Ukrainian flag posted on their posts. And uh, my personal, I have a friend whose twin brother is in uh, Lviv right now, and his family has been begging him to come home, and he said no. And he is in his apartment right now helping to build Molotov cocktails. Uh, And he could easily come home. And the amount of Ukrainian Canadians who have gone back Mm -hmm. to the homeland to fight to defend Ukraine is is just astonishing. So of the people you know there, everybody is safe uh, at the moment? I don't know. We lost communication with our family members about five days ago. And they're also in the Lviv area? Uh, No, some are in in Ivano-Frankivsk. And um, some are 
in Kiev, some, some are in Lviv or in towns nearby, and we've had no communication. I could call my family in the States to find out if they know what's going on, but I have to be honest with you, I'm too scared to because I don't mm-hmm. want to feel any sadder. Than you already do, yeah. Um, well, let's go to the phone again. You, we've got Barry from North York on the line. Um, Barry, go ahead, your thoughts. Hello, Jane. Um, something that maybe a lot of people don't know, um, I have a friend of mine who has a pen pal in Ukraine. She's in Crimea, and she believes that... Um, Putin is her father, because that's the information she's getting. She's getting, uh, Putin is protecting us from the Nazis, mm. and um, he's just doing such a great job, and we support him 100%. And she says, well, okay, well, what about the information that we're getting here in Canada, United States? Oh, that's all fake, because that's all propaganda, she says. So um, it's something that uh, never, that's a problem. I don't know how they're going to um, deal with that. Well, but that's right, because they're getting a whole different uh, a format of information than the rest of the world, because they they are basically brainwashed in their within their borders. Exactly, and I heard, I think, on the news on a newscast the other day, one of your newscasts that correct me if I'm wrong, but something to do with the uh, newscasters, and if they mention the name war. They're going to be in trouble and maybe be put in jail by Putin. Is that what I heard? Uh, was that um, accurate information? Well, that could be, yes, that could very well have been uh, part of one of our reports. Um, we're certainly trying to get as many nuggets of information into our newscasts as possible. Barry, thank you for your call. Uh, you know, again, we're looking for your calls. If you have friends, family in Ukraine or Russia, uh, what you're hearing from them, the numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. My colleague, Genya Hulak, is on the line with us down the hall here at the Zoomerplex. She's of Ukrainian heritage. Ganya, how are you going to manage the information uh, for your own mental health? I mean, it's so easy to keep CNN on all the time if you're in the car listening to newscasts. It's how are you going to manage that? You know that? what? I have to stop yeah. watching. Um, part, when I'm strong, when I'm feeling strong, I will come home. I will turn it on just to see what has happened next. But as soon as I feel my energy going down, I, I know that I had to preserve myself. I have to shut it off and I just have to watch something else or go in the kitchen, do some cooking, go for a walk because it, it's, it, it just, it really does play on your emotions. It can become overwhelming. And, you know, now that we're 12 days into this, for, for people who are spending their recreational time at home, uh, watching the minute-by-minute developments, uh, I, I can imagine that experts would also suggest that you take some time away from it uh, just just to get some balance and perspective and, and not to become overwhelmed. Absolutely. And uh, you did hear what happened at the Cineplex in Etobicoke. Yes. That also was jarring, the fact that uh, somebody displaying the Russian flags their cars got sledgehammered. And when I heard that, the first thing I thought of was that whoever was displaying the Russian flag, I personally think he should have also had a Ukrainian flag on the other side. Yes, right, right. And and that would be the proper sentiment. I, I think. think it would be, because if you're only flying the Russian flag to me and maybe other people, not necessarily just the Ukrainians, but people who are supporting us, are they would think that you are condoning what Putin is doing. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, these incidents, and, you know, we saw it with Future Bakery as well, uh, North Queen and the East Mall, uh, the the pro-Putin graffiti on the outside of what is a Ukrainian-owned bakery. Uh, There have been a few incidents here and there, but I tell you, you know, Myron and I, we do put up our Ukrainian flags on Sunday, last Sunday and this Sunday uh, during the, the both big rallies, but we're taking them down at the end of the day because we don't want to get our tires slashed. Yeah, I mean, my neighbors yeah. in my condominium have told me to take my flags in mm-hmm. once I park because we don't have any cameras down there and they're scared that that's going to happen to my truck. So what are you doing uh, on a personal level? We've talked about, uh, I mean, you are taking part in the rallies. Uh, you're talking with donating friends. Donating money. Donating money. Um, there, There's a lot to do with that. You, there's a lot we can do with that energy, right? Yep. 
And 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 so how are you going to be able to keep up the momentum, the positivity uh, that you need? I mean, you're going to have moments of sadness, but we don't know how long this thing is going to go on for. Well, what what helps me to be stronger is reading the posts that are on LinkedIn. And uh, that's the only social media I do. But I know that there is also... Um, uh, you know, people on Facebook and whatever, and it's all supporting the Ukrainians. And in that rally that I went to that was held, uh, especially at City Hall, mm-hmm. it was the Lithuanians, the Latvians. Yes. There were, um, there were llamas, um, uh, like Tibetan llamas, uh, a group of them there. Uh, there were Asian people, everybody in support. And that is what keeps me strong. Well, and that really was a cross-section of Toronto, too, wasn't it? The multiculturalism that is Toronto. And so many people who live in this city have fled persecution. They understand persecution. And and that is why the solidarity with Ukraine is happening uh, to the extent that it is. And the neighboring countries that were part of the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. are very scared, I think, that they're going to be next. Genya Hulak, we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your time Thanks, uh, Jane. during these difficult days. Slava Slava. <laughs> and I will see you down the hall shortly. Um, you can continue to call in. We're on the air until 1 o'clock. Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane, for Libby. We're going to continue uh, speaking with people, uh, members of the Ukrainian-Canadian community, uh, those involved in raising funds for humanitarian aid, as well as, uh, you know, the rallies that we had last weekend and again this yesterday in front of the Russian consulate. Uh, you're welcome to share your thoughts, 41 416- 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week. We've been talking about Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine and how it's affecting Canadians of Ukrainian heritage. Joining me now is Markian Schweck of the Toronto branch of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Markian and I actually know each other from my husband Myron's circle of Ukrainian Canadians. Markian, nice to speak with you. Absolutely. Same here. How are you making out personally? How are you doing through all of this? Well, there's a lot of stress, of course. Uh, everyone is watching the news. And every time you see a, a bomb go off or a family yesterday, I saw a witness on TV, uh, a bomb land and uh, eight people were killed and four were from the same family. And you see two two children lying there dead uh, for doing nothing but trying to get to safety. Uh, those kind of images are distressing. No, they absolutely are. And I was just speaking with my previous guest, also Ukrainian-Canadian, and she's saying that she has to take time away from the news just to clear her head because it's so overwhelming. Yeah, I do as well. We uh, we have uh, organized that we to stand with Ukraine committee and we organize the rallies in the Toronto area. And we send instructions to teams on what's going on. And we're expecting, uh, you know, a lot more to, to be worse, a lot more than it is today. And then I actually do the opposite. I watch the news at night because it's the only time I have free and I go to bed with all those images in my mind and wake up the next day and start again. So it's a, I, I'm a news junkie and I watch everything. I watch the analytics and the more I learn, the more I want to work and, and to help Ukraine. So that is your motivation. Um, and as far as the Ukrainian Canadian Congress goes, uh, and the, and the rally, the mega rally that was organized last Sunday at Nathan Phillips Square, that was, Really, truly an event. Uh, yesterday as well, uh, Myron and I were there last weekend and we were on uh, St. Clair yesterday at the Russian consulate. Um, the shows of solidarity, the showing of solidarity from the people of, of Toronto. How has that made you feel? Oh, it's been terrific. We had yesterday, um, you know, most of the uh, the people from Eastern Europe represented with us. We had uh, folks from the Jewish community come out. We had people from Southeast Asian communities who are afraid of China, of course, and, and uh, the, the communist influence there. Um, and those are the people. And then regular Canadians coming off the street to support us. And it, it just bolsters you because you realize that you're not alone in this uh, in this fight. 
No, we've certainly seen that from Torontonians. Uh, how are you planning to continue on? Will there be weekly rallies, uh, demonstrations? What is the plan at this point? Yeah, we, we in Toronto chose to. There are many groups in Toronto organizing uh, smaller events, and we try to support them, but we chose to make one major rally every Sunday. Uh, it gives an opportunity for a broader coalition of folks to come together. And we hold them at, uh, people are interested every Sunday at two o'clock and we, we select our next uh, location, uh, based on, on the newsreels and see what we see to determine where's the greatest effect. Um, you know, our, our role is to uh, bring attention to the issue, um, that everybody know that we are fighting, um, the, the war for Europe, the war for NATO, the war for democracy against totalitarian Russia. And, uh, Ukraine is only the first step. And a lot of folks say, you know, this is not NATO's war. It absolutely is. NATO's into it um, right up to their neck. The only thing they haven't done is uh, physically injured the war. But through Ukraine, Ukraine is their proxy and is fighting the war. If Ukraine loses, uh, Russia will be on the doorstep of four NATO countries, which is Romania, uh, Poland, Slovakia, and uh, and Hungary. And that'll cost the West a lot more and put them at more risk. It's it's akin to World War II where they didn't stop Hitler in time and it cost way more way later. So, uh, you know, support Ukraine now is our message. So let's talk about, uh, in terms of a preemptive strike by NATO, if Ukraine were to fall without direct assistance from NATO, uh, firsthand involvement in Ukraine, what would happen after that? I mean, in terms of the NATO nations, what position would that put NATO in at that point? So right now you can see the uh, U.S. and other Western countries shoring up the uh, defense lines of the uh, NATO countries in Eastern Europe or on the front line. So you can see that's uh, already part of their posturing. Um, But that is nothing compared to how many uh, soldiers they will have to put on the line and the defense that will have to be augmented uh, on that uh, front line should Russia completely take over Ukraine. So um, NATO will have to engage a lot more, and it'll be very expensive. Um, the other thing is, we estimate that there'll be at least 5 to 8 million refugees going into Europe. That will be an immense pressure on Europe. Um, you've already seen something like 1.7 million people to date, and Russia hasn't even invaded more than um, a third of a, sorry, a quarter of the country on the east, uh, eastern side, and they haven't even crossed the Dnipro River significantly. Um, when they should they take over the capital and, and press westwards, the, the crush of people at the borders will be immense. Um, and so, again, we call on NATO to help. Otherwise, it's going to be a complete humanitarian disaster. I'm speaking with Marken Schweck of the Toronto branch of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. In terms of how NATO can be involved in Putin's war against Ukraine at this moment without officially being involved, uh, what's your take on what should be done? Well, ultimately, you know, I watched some of the filming of the Russian jets flying over and just bombing people indiscriminately. And they're, they're not even targeting military locations. So ultimately, Ukraine is calling for a no-fly zone. Um, I know there's a lot of resistance right now in the West, and uh, and we can talk about that later, why I think that will happen. Yes. Um, but in the meantime, you know, there are 60, or 60 plus MiGs, uh, Russian jets, uh, Russian made jets sitting in Eastern Europe, uh, mostly in Poland, 26, I believe. And they're looking, those countries are looking for the Americans to help them replenish their stock if they give them to Ukraine. So those those 60 plus uh, planes would be immensely beneficial to Ukraine because they only have, that would double their air force. Russia has an air force that's 11 or 12 times bigger than Ukrainian air force. So that would at least double Ukrainians, uh, their size. Um, they need many more javelins to take out tanks, um, and they need many more stingers or equivalent type missiles to take out aircraft. So if they can't put a no-fly zone, at least give them those jets and at least give them those tools so they can uh, fight and defend themselves, because right now they're rationing them carefully. Um, it's it's embarrassing for the West to have come so late to the table, um, and and Ukraine is there fighting the war, um, but they need the tools. Uh, on the Western side, also the you know some of the the, the items they can do is the swift embargo um, uh, for Russia is affecting most of their banks, but not all of them. So the Russian banks are trading between each other. They need to fully shut out Russia from SWIFT. And they put a full oil embargo on Russia. Now, for Europe, that's a challenge. 
We understand, but the U.S. and Canada should be doing that immediately, a full oil embargo. Help us understand uh, the request by Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, uh, for the no-fly zone. How NATO could be involved in that, given that Ukraine is not officially a NATO member, and how much that would tick off Vladimir Putin should that no-fly zone be requested? Sure. Well, the no-fly zone essentially says that the West will patrol the Ukrainian skies and anybody dares to fly um, will be shot down. And of course, that's a risk because the U.S. in particular is the only nation that has the strength to enforce that. Um, other European countries are too small on their own to enforce it. They may support it. But without the U.S., there's just a, there's no talking about a no-fly zone. Now, that puts two big powers in direct opposition to each other, and I understand there's some challenges for them. Um, the the issue of the war, though, is we're already at war. Uh, Russia has interfered with elections in the West. Russia has uh, sent so much disinformation into the West. They've had cyber attacks all over Western countries. Uh, we're imposing sanctions on just about everything we can think of in Russia. And and the West is arming Ukraine. Um, Putin has already said, don't don't give them these planes or that'll be a, a line too far. Um, so so the West is in you know quite deep already. Um, Ukraine is doing all the fighting, and the no-fly zone would, would give them at least a fighting chance on the ground, because I said they, the Russian Air Force is, is about 11 times bigger, so Ukraine doesn't have much of a chance in the air. Um, but with all the tools, um, you know, MiGs, Javelins, Stingers, they could at least fight it. Um, one of the other things I want to mention is, at some point, the West will, pr- will provide a no-fly zone. The only question is, Jane, how long will they wait? They waited too long with, with um, sanctions. They waited too long with providing lethal defensive weapons, um, and now they're going to wait too long. How many how many children are going to have to die? Mm-hmm. Um, how many scenes of, of executions on the streets are we going to see? How many civilians are going to have to die? 100,000, 200,000, a million, before it becomes clear. How many nuclear plants are going to get taken over or bombed and spew nuclear waste into the air um, before the West reacts? I don't know what that line too far is, but at some point it will happen. And we're just trying to alert the West that to be attentive and support Ukraine as much as possible, as soon as possible. And don't wait till it's too late. And at what point is there a real fear of nuclear retaliation by Putin on on other world nations, other world leaders? Well, it's a, that's a tough question. Um, he seems to be, from what I can see on the analysis on as I watch TV, I'm, I don't know him or have any insight, but seems to be a little unstable. Seems to be putting all his cards down on taking over Ukraine, no matter what. Um, the Ukrainian forces say they've taken out 11,000 uh, Russian um, soldiers already. Russia continues to say 500 plus. So clearly they're hiding everything from their people. The Internet is closed down. Communication is closed down. Something like 11,000 demonstrators have been arrested in Russia. So there's a c- complete blackout of information. Um, will he launch something? Can't say for sure. Um, it seems to be deranged. I can only hope that the people who actually manned the missiles would stop him from doing something crazy. Right. Well, and on that note, uh, is it realistic to think that the, the people of Russia, the people around Vladimir Putin, could turn on him, that there could be a revolution that would save Ukraine and ultimately uh, the world's democracies? Yeah, you hope so. But, you know, as much as I would like to think that, I watched the uh, the um, the uh, scenes. He was meeting with some, uh, I believe it was some stewardesses, I'm not sure exactly who, but a, a number of ladies at a table, and, and they showed the film. He wasn't even at that meeting. They they It was a green screen shot of him. His hand went through the microphone. You could see it as he was speaking. Uh, there was some analysis done. So he's even afraid to meet with people. They're just they're just um, adding his, his picture into the film. Um, he sits away from his ministers at the far end of yeah. the table. He's seen those shots. Who knows where he is and if there's any access to him at all. Um, he seems to have been, he's, I think he fears everyone. Um, I think he's becoming unhooked, deranged, and maybe they could take him out, but I would have no clue if anybody even knows where he is uh, apart from his inner circle. Um, it's, a, it's a real big challenge. Just uh, switching gears here before we say goodbye, and this has been a fascinating conversation, uh, so thank you for that. People, what I'm hearing from people, whether they're of Ukrainian background or not, 
is they're feeling helpless. How can I help when I'm over here in Canada? What can I do? How can I make a difference? Uh, your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Great. Thanks. So a few things. Um, you can you know, contact your MP and just ask them to provide more support to Ukraine. Canada is not a big supplier of lethal weapons, and, and we know that. But what Canada can supply, the, there are so many volunteers on the front line. You can imagine young men and women volunteering. They're going out in their running shoes or a pair of boots and a ski jacket to the front lines. They have no bulletproof vests. We need to get any bulletproof vests we can get to them. They need they need uh, uh, boots that they can they can fight in. They're going out in their shoes, and and that's inappropriate for that kind of uh, terrain and weather. They need other defensive equipment. They need scopes for their rifles. They need night vision goggles so they can see the Russians invading them and stop them at night. Every platoon needs at least one pair, and they're like two and a half thousand dollars. We've sent hundreds of pairs of these uh, of these scopes and and jackets. But if anybody out there can get us any kind of, of uh, bulletproof vests, jackets, scopes, anything defensive to protect those young people, uh, we'd be immensely, immensely pleased. And you can contact the Ukrainian Canadian Congress in Toronto, and uh, and we'd be we'd be so grateful. All the information at ucc.ca, uh, also of course redcross.ca for humanitarian aid to Ukraine. How confident can Canadians be in knowing that if they make a donation, that that money will go to buy supplies or to help the people in Ukraine? Well, you know, um, I will say one thing: everybody who manages funds from the Ukrainian Committee in Canada, or first of all, are, we know them personally, so they can be very sure. Number two is. The administration fees are so infinitesimally small in our on our funds because we don't have big administrations mm-hmm. to feed. I know um, you're you know, you're all volunteers, right? <laughs> absolutely, just yeah. you know, ninety nine point nine percent are volunteers, and so that's that's sure that your money when you do donate does go. I know in Toronto, if you call the Ukrainian Congress in Toronto, I personally manage the funds here, and um, we we send them over funds. I'll tell you what they yesterday I sent them money, and they said don't send us any more money. There's nothing to buy in Ukraine. Every store has been stripped. They're asking us to get goods from the West, the, the aforementioned products I mentioned. And they're saying, get them, get them to us and ship them to us because we can't buy anything here anymore. So if people donate either cash to us and or those goods for defensive purposes, we will take care of it. We know how to get it there. We have an efficient supply line. Uh, the Poles are very good at the border. The Ukrainians are good at the border. And we have teams in Ukraine, in the Western capital, who delivered out to the Eastern Front. They send out vans every day with equipment, uh, loyal people who risk getting bombed and attacked, and they are driving that equipment right to the front lines. Wonderful. Mark Yan, thank you so much. UCC.ca, by the way, for more information. Mark Yan Shwek of the Toronto branch of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. The circumstances are not pleasurable, but it was nice to chat with you. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. Jane for Libby, and tomorrow, it's March 8th, it's International Women's Day. We will commemorate that day with you then. In the meantime, Bob Comsick and the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.